0: So God, we ask that you come and you speak to us. God, convict our hearts. Show us where we haven't been listening to you. Because God, we have gathered here because we want to know more about you. We want to know how we can be more like you. So Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Fill your people so that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well good morning to all of you here at the 945 service and good morning if you're watching online, maybe you're watching on our live stream, maybe you're in Oklahoma or New Jersey or somewhere out there, we're just excited that you found us, so welcome. My name's Annie Duncan, I'm one of the pastors here on staff and it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Or maybe it's not so happy, it's just a Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday, though, this was very important to us a few years ago, right? Uh, February 2nd, 2014, the Seahawks won their first Super Bowl. It was a day to remember. I remember it very well because I got married the day before. So my husband and I, when we were announced as husband and wife for the first time, we had our Seahawk jerseys on over our wedding attire. And it was totally awesome. And I remember thinking though, this will actually only be awesome if we win the game tomorrow. (laughs) Which we did, so it was still awesome. Um, But then fast forward a year, and the Seahawks are back in the Super Bowl, which was on February 1st, which was our one-year wedding anniversary. And I don't know about all of you, but we watched Seahawks games with some pretty superstitious friends, and they were convinced that we had to go back to Maui to watch the game where we had watched it on our honeymoon. And to be honest, we were convinced of that as well. We're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Uh, Will you help fund our way? Um, They did not offer to help fund our way. But we asked them, you know, can we watch the Super Bowl with you guys? We'd still love to watch it. And they're like, no, that's bad luck. You know, uh, better not have you come. Until I said, well, what if I wore the same thing that I wore on February 1st last year? And that didn't really sink in until I said, well, February 1st, I got married, and I was in my wedding dress and my Russell Wilson jersey, so what if I wear that to the Super Bowl party? They thought about it for like days. Like, they thought about it. And then they finally got back to me and my husband, and they're like, okay, yeah, Annie, if you do that, we'll let you come to the Super Bowl party. It's amazing the things that we do even as adults just to get invited to the party. Um, But here's a picture of my commitment to do that. Uh, it's, it says, the caption's kind of small, but it says, this was my outfit on February 1st, 2014. Think I'll do it again on February 1st, 2015. Go Hawks. It's only weird if it doesn't work. And you all know the end of that story. It's just weird because it totally didn't work. <laughs> and if you are one of those Seahawks fans that's still running through that last play wondering why didn't we win that game, it's my fault. <laughs> it's only weird if it doesn't work. Now, Jeremiah must have been the one that coined the phrase, it's only weird if it doesn't work. Because here we find him in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. It's in chapter 25. He's at the midpoint of his prophetic career. And he says this, 23 years it's been. God's word has come to me from early each morning to late every night. And I've passed it on to you. And you haven't listened to a word of it. You guys, he's been prophesying for 23 years but his day-in, day-out prophesying has no results, like no one has repented. Now we know Jeremiah to be a pretty well-known prophet, but have you ever done something day-in, day-out with no success? I think if I was Jeremiah, I would call myself a failure. I'd probably have given up after a year, or maybe two, but 23 years, I don't know. From our perspective, it looks as though Jeremiah is stuck, stuck in the middle. And we know that Jeremiah's job was hard. We know that he got uh, made fun of, he got discouraged, and at times he was depressed. And wouldn't you, after 23 years of doing something, wouldn't you wanna throw the towel in? I'm sure he thought of quitting. I'm sure the thought crossed his mind, well, I've given it a really good try, God. Can't you just let me conform to the culture around me? But he didn't give up. He knew his work and his call was right and good. And so he stayed his course, he persevered, and continued to deliver the words that God continually gave him. February is Black History Month, a month where we take intentional time to remember the stories of our African American brothers and sisters. And I say intentional time because we should see and remember their stories every single day, not just one month out of the year. And we don't remember them in a siloed version of our American history, but we remember their story and continued story as being central and integral to our American story. Like Jeremiah, their story is one that shows perseverance and that never giving up kind of attitude. And like Jeremiah, they knew what they were standing for. Jeremiah was oppressed, but knew that what he stood for was right. And our African American brothers and sisters were also oppressed, but they knew that at the core of their oppression was the truth, that their lives mattered. So Black History Month, it also reminds us that discrimination is not ancient history. Yes, a part of it lives in our past, but there is still a part of it lives in our present. We've made remarkable change and progress, but we should not be surprised that the work of healing has yet to be completed. So as we remember their stories, let them be an inspiration to help us further progress. Like Scott Dudley said last week, Our role as Christians is to seek justice and to follow Christ. And justice is found in every single book of the Bible. But not careful justice, not the let me cover my own basis kind of justice, but a justice that's radical, might make you or me feel uncomfortable. And as we navigate the climate of our country today, and oh my goodness, the climate of our country today, let's not get comfortable Let's not be like the people that Jeremiah preached against that were comfortable to their culture and community around them, but let's use our voices to seek and act justly. And a step towards radical justice begins by noticing and advocating. Carrie is one of my friends from seminary, and she was born and raised in the South. She grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and upon attending seminary in Seattle, she was just really glad to to just have some diversity, theologically as well as racially, because it was different from where she grew up. And one night after class, a few of us went out to grab a bite of supper together. And shortly after sitting down, my Southern friend Carrie said something that made the whole table go quiet, because it was a racial slur. And the person sitting next to her was her friend, Samantha, who was African American. And Samantha said to her, Carrie, do you know what you just said? And do you know what that means? And Carrie said, no, it's just something my family has always said. And Samantha said, Samantha proceeded to explain to her what it meant that she said and why it was offensive. And Carrie was horrified and apologetic as well as so grateful to her friend Samantha for telling her you know, that what she was saying was so wrong. And I wonder how many times Carrie had used that phrase, and maybe it had made people feel uncomfortable, but nobody was brave enough to correct her and tell her what she was saying was wrong. For Carrie, she didn't know the repercussions of how this racial slur would affect someone else until she was in a friendship with someone else. We can't expect to know another's perspective if we aren't in relationship with them. And I offer this story because maybe some of us can relate. Sometimes the things that we say are offensive and we think that no one's watching. Sometimes the things that other people say are offensive. And language is a small thing, but it's a very powerful thing. And it's a way that we can help overturn discrimination because small acts of discrimination lead to a big problem. And this week on social media, speaker and author Bob Goff said, if we don't see hurting isolated people when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're not looking hard enough. Which is a convicting quote and timely from a white guy. And that's another thing that I'm noticing. I need to be filling my social media feed as well as my life with people that don't just look like me and think like me, but people that are diverse, people that will challenge me, people that will say to me, Annie, hey, is that really what you wanna be saying right now? As a church, we are committed to racial justice. We're committed to being a community that shows God's heart for justice and God's inclusion of all people and where that's learned and practiced together in community. So if you're feeling stuck in the middle, if you're feeling frustrated at what you're seeing out there in our community and nation, you are not alone. And you are not just alone behind your computer screen on Facebook. But there are ways that you can get involved. And there are ways that the church is involved. And if you're looking for a way to get involved, uh uh-oh, maybe I left it. Um, I've got a copy of the messenger. Our messenger for this month, it's all on justice, and I encourage you to read some of those stories there, to look through it and get inspired and find ways, if you're feeling frustrated, find ways for you to just act and do something. Because especially in light of what's going on in our country today, where there's so much division, where there's so many people calling for action, people using the hashtag resist, I think the one thing that we can all agree on is that we are living in a strange land and a strange time, which is exactly where Jeremiah found himself. And if Jeremiah used hashtags, his probably would have been persist. Because just as Jeremiah called the people of God to action, we are called to action. Scott said last week, Jesus didn't come and die so that we could go to church. There's so much more that we can do as Christians. So we're going to take a look at how Jeremiah persists because there are things that we can do. There are promises that have been made to us as the people of God. And there are prayers that we can pray. And there are actions that we can act on. So what helped Jeremiah persist? At this midpoint in his life, after 25 chapters of prophetic words, Jeremiah has come to hold fast and true to a few things. And the first is this, Jeremiah knew that the day was God's day, not the people's. Jeremiah didn't just resolve to grit his teeth and bear it for 23 plus years, but he simply took each day on its own. He rose with the sun and went before his Lord saying, okay, God, what are you up to today? He didn't get up to face rejection, though rejection was there. He didn't get up to face bullies, though they would be there too. He got up to be with God. And therein lies the secret to unrelenting perseverance. We don't have to be bombarded of what's going to happen in the future. But we get to get up each day and greet God and say, Okay, God, today is yours, not mine. I'm open and ready, so fill me and use me which is a really good prayer to pray. And it reminds us that the day is truly God's and God is in control. God has a plan and his heart is for wholeness and justice. And when we get up each day with that being our perspective, God's heart bleeds into ours and is filled with that mercy and knowledge and truth. A few years ago, I got up in the morning like I did every morning before the sun rose and I went for my morning run And I'm a creature of habit, so I would always run the same route. I knew exactly how long it would take me. I knew the turns and where to go. But that morning, as the sky sky started to brighten, I felt like God said to me, Hey Annie, at that fork in the road up ahead, turn right, not left. And I knew that this was a thought that was not my own because I'm a control freak. And I was like, why would I go right? I don't know what's down there. I got to be back soon. Why would I go right? But the nudge kept on nudging me, and so I went with it. And I got to that fork in the road and I turned right, which just happened to be east. And I climbed a quick hill, and at the top of the hill, I saw the sun peeking out from some clouds. And it was the most amazing sunrise. I had to stop in my tracks. And I said, oh my gosh, God, did you just want me to see that? And God was like, yep. And I was like, whoa. And God was like, yeah. (laughs) Because you see, I got up thinking that the day was my own. But God, God was like, no, I want to I wanna show you something. I want you to see this. And it's actually just around the corner. I didn't know that that morning God wanted to show off and show me a beautiful sunrise. And I wonder if that's how Jeremiah approached every day. He was certain that he'd get up and do what he'd been doing every day before. But there was beauty in knowing what he didn't know. He was getting up to meet with God. He was getting up to meet and deliver God's words and they would be new every morning, just like the sunrise. And that's what perseverance does. Perseverance looks, excuse me, forward, not backward. If Jeremiah had been focused on looking backwards, it probably would have been really, really hard to get up in the morning. I mean, getting up in the morning would have been a drag. He probably would have pushed the snooze button a few times, maybe slept until noon, maybe just called it a half day because he's like, okay, I've been doing this for 8,096 days. I know how this is going to go down. I'm going to say a few things and people aren't going to listen to me. God won't mind if I call it a half day. But no, Jeremiah lived persistently. And he was able to persevere because he was looking forward. He rose with the sun, all of its newness. The day wasn't Jeremiah's, the day was the Lord's. So a second thing that Jeremiah knew was that he wasn't stuck in the rut, but committed to a purpose. To an outsider, Jeremiah was stuck in a rut. He was not effective. He was not an instant success. To an onlooker, he was in a rut that he would never get out of. But Jeremiah was committed, committed to the purpose that God had given him. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And God equipped Jeremiah. I have put my words in your mouth. And, God's prom- and God promised Jeremiah's protection. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you. So you see, what looked like a rut to maybe somebody else. To Jeremiah, it was like, I am committed to a purpose. I know what I'm about. These are the things that I get to hold on to. I know God's promises. In worship in the sanctuary this morning, we heard the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. Sevilia Martin wrote these words to the song in 1905. And when she was asked about the inspiration of the hymn, she said this, Early in the spring of 1905, my husband, Dr. Martin, and I were sojourning in Elmira, New York, We contracted a deep friendship for a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, true saints of God. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for 20 years, and her husband was incurably disabled and had to propel himself to and from his business in a wheelchair. But despite their afflictions, they lived happy lives, bringing inspiration and comfort to all who knew them. One day while we were visiting with the Doolittles, my husband commented on their bright hopefulness and asked them the secret of it. Mrs. Doolittle's reply was simple. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The beauty of this simple expression of boundless faith gripped their hearts and fired the imagination of Dr. Martin and me. The hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow, was the outcome of that experience. The Doolittles could have taken a survey of their life and said, yeah, we're kind of stuck. We're kind of stuck with this. But they were committed to a purpose. They were committed to seeing that God was providing for them and how they could share God's hope with so many. I know a guy that's a police officer, which is a hard job. It's not all lights and sirens and speed chases, but it's hard work. And early on in his career, he once said something to me that showed his purpose and what he was committed to. He said that every single person that he pulls over, he does so in a posture where he hopes that they thank him at the end of that interaction. He takes his public service very seriously. And one night, I got to do a ride along with him where he pulled over and arrested two people. He pulled them over and they were going to jail. And even though they were going to jail, they thanked him at the end of their interaction. They thanked him because he wasn't condescending. He treated them like individuals and colleagues, and he served them in a posture of humility. I'll never forget that. They were thanking him for going to jail. It just seemed so absurd. His job may have it stuck in the red tendencies, but he's committed to a deeper sense of purpose. So what is something that you are in the middle of? What's something in your life that maybe you've labeled as, yep, I'm stuck in the rut here? Maybe it's school, or your health, or a job that seems to have no growth. Maybe it's your marriage, or a relationship. Maybe it's being a Christian today, and you feel discouraged because of what's going on in our country. Maybe you're somebody that's committed to working for justice, and though you're committed to working for justice, um, you're stuck in the middle You can you can remember the beginning of your work, but you're you're not able to see where the end is. And if that's you, well, hang in there because you are Jeremiah. After 23 years, Jeremiah probably wasn't able to remember what it looked like at the beginning of his career, and at 23 years, he probably wasn't able to see an end in sight. But he took each day on its own, and he persevered. So Jeremiah knew that the day was God's, not the people's. He wasn't stuck in a rut, but he was committed to a purpose. And third, Jeremiah knew how to live persistently because God lived persistently towards him. Jeremiah learned this because it was modeled for him by God. God's never giving up kind of love showed Jeremiah that he too could have that never giving up kind of love. And because Jeremiah gets this, gets how God is so persistent towards us, he's all the more frustrated with the people. And he says to them, I get up with God. I listen to God, but you have not listened. And therein lies our problem. Just as we're certain that each day the sun will rise, we also need to be certain that God is living persistently towards us, and we can go to him and listen to him and meet with him every day. And do you think that God tires of living persistently towards us? Eugene Peterson writes that God's persistence is not a dogged repetition of duty. It has all the surprise and creativity and yet all the certainty and regularity of a new day. It's a sunrise when the spontaneous and the certain arrive at the same time. God does not tire of persistence because God's persistence isn't like ours. We get tired, we get weary, but God does not. He relentlessly pursues us and that shows us how we can have strength and perseverance. And I'll close with this. A friend of mine shared her story at the beloved all-girl event a few months ago. Perhaps some of you were there and heard it. Many girls and women shared their stories about how God has gotten them through a trial, which is what God does. But what what made my friend's story so powerful was that she was in the middle of her story. She was in the middle of expecting hope and restoration and healing from God. And what she shared was raw and genuine, but it was so hopeful at the same time because I think so many of us could resonate with where she was coming from. She wasn't telling a happy story with a happy ending, she was telling a true story of something that she was pleading God and asking, God, will you show up? And I think the reason why it struck me as such a powerful testimony is because we are middle people, we are people stuck in the middle. Stuck between heaven and earth, yes, we see the inbreaking of God's kingdom and glory, but we also see so much brokenness around us. But God's message to us is clear. I see you in the middle, I see you stuck, but I am with you. I am with you. Keep going. You know what giving up feels like. Let's see what happens if you don't. I love you and I am with you. That's the God we serve. That's the God that's for us. That's the God that gives us hope when we're stuck in the middle. Amen? Amen. Amen. So God, we thank you that you are a God that knows where we're at. God, you are a God that's with us at the beginning in the middle and the end. God, you assure us and you fill us every day of our lives. So God, help us to hold on to that promise. Help us to be your people as we go from here. Help us to listen to your voice. It's in your name that we pray, amen.